Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Bill Fletcher, Jr. Hey, Bill, thank you for joining me today. I'm really glad to be on the program. Thank you. So, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. Saturdays and 3 p.m. Tuesdays on 101.9 FM KVSH. You can learn more about the show at voiceofvashon.org or visit my website, marchtwisdale.com. Also, I'd like to remind folks that the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the board staff, underwriters, or donors of Voice of Vashon. As an organization, VOV does not take political positions. We do support our show hosts and their guests in expressing their views as long as they're not obscene or hate-mongering. Thanks, folks, for listening, and we're going to dive into the show. So, Bill, can you go ahead and get us started with a little bit of your background, you know, to sort of tell folks who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I am a New Yorker by birth, which I always like to start with because that's so central to who I am, who I became, my identity in many respects. Uh, I'm a writer. I'm a social justice activist. I was radicalized when I was 13, and I've been active since I was 15. I've spent most of my adult life in the labor movement, but I've also taught. I ran Trans-Africa Forum. So for me, the struggle around social justice is absolutely essential. Right. And sounds like it has basically deeply informed your life. Oh, absolutely. Well, I grew up in a family that loved to talk about world events, politics. And I'm talking about my nuclear family and extended family. Mm-hmm. You could always go to family gatherings and there'd be discussions about all kinds of things. And one of the uh, one of the stories I mention in my most recent book, "They're Bankrupting Us and Twenty Other Myths About Unions," mm-hmm. was when I was maybe six, and my I had a great grandfather who was named William Stanley Braithwaite, who was a very famous pre-Harlem Renaissance. African-American poet, writer, anthologist. And there was a family gathering, and he was in the kitchen where he lived, you know, at the house of his apartment with his wife, my great-grandmother. And there was a discussion going on about Laos, the country Laos. Mm. And that was a point when the U.S. was considering going into Laos. And my great-grandfather says to me, he looks at me and says, well, Billy, do you think we should go into Laos? I had no idea what he was talking about, but standing next to me was my father, and he said to my great-grandfather, give him time, and he'll have an answer for you. And in a lot of ways, that just really sums up my, my early life and my experiences. That's really cool what your dad said. It, it really was, and he was, he was an amazing guy. He and my mother both, very supportive of me in so many ways, but also deeply fearful that I would be killed, jailed, or blacklisted mm-hmm. uh, for my beliefs. And that was something that I, I felt very strongly when I was in high school, and I became radicalized and was very close to the Black Panther Party. And my father says to me, said to me at a certain point that he did not want me to join the Panther Party, that he was afraid of what might happen Mm -hmm. to me. 
And I respected my father very deeply. And I said, okay. So I did not join the Panthers, but I did everything short of joining the Panthers. Supported them, set up, helped to set up two student organizations that were aligned with them, sold the Panther paper, attended meetings. But, you know, my father had witnessed the Cold War, the McCarthy era. Right. He saw what it did to people, and that was his concern, that I would end up being blacklisted. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, such an important concern to have. It has happened multiple times, and it's sort of happening a little bit. Um, right now, it's just not quite as well recognized. Hollywood definitely has some shackles on it, yes. for example. Absolutely. I started working with Danny Glover when I took over Trans Africa Forum in 20, 2002. Mm-hmm. I met him in 99, but we were meeting and interacting more regularly after I took over Trans Africa because he was the board chair. And we became friends as a result. And one of the things that I asked him at a certain point was about Hollywood and about, you know, various progressive actors and actresses, but that there was the absence of any kind of real or ongoing organization mm-hmm. of actors and actresses that was progressive. And he said, Bill, you have to keep in mind that Hollywood remains traumatized by the Cold War and that the entire legacy of the Cold War still permeates Hollywood so that even though you'll have individuals such as himself and others that will speak out and are very courageous, there is a reluctance to get organized. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's related to what people saw with the Hollywood tent. Right. Well, and also there was... Trumbo. Thank you. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Right. I mean... Fabulous film. Yes. Everyone should see this, you know, just to catch the the reality. And and the thing about that film, which just, I was so moved by it, is that for the listeners, it's interesting to watch what happens in Trumbo's own attitude. Dalton Trumbo was a a screenwriter, Mm -hmm. for those that don't know. Right. And made a substantial amount of money doing that, even though he was a leftist and then he, he gets blacklisted. In the very beginning, he is not particularly worried. Anti-communism, blacklisting, doesn't take it very seriously. And then jobs just dried up. Yeah. Uh, people, people suffered wasn't really just about jobs. It was all the people who suddenly wouldn't talk to you. It was, you know, a form form of social ostracism. Do you remember what one of the things that happened was the role of the infamous Hedda Hopper? Yes, exactly. The gossip columnist who led tirade after tirade against people on the left. And I believe that what shattered things was when John F. Kennedy went to see Spartacus. Because Kirk Douglas and I think Otto Preminger oh, right. had said they were going to give him public credit. And Kennedy went to see it. And it's at that point that Hedda Hopper realized the jig was up. Uh, the name just flew through my head and disappeared again. What was the name of the major newspaper? He has a gigantic mansion. It starts with an H. 
Oh, Hertz. Uh, Thank Hertz. you. Right, right. William Randolph Hertz. Thank you. So he was the one primarily responsible in the state of California for generating the anti-Japanese sentiment and creating all sorts of lies about Japanese Americans and immigrants that motivated the non-Japanese American citizenry to support the incarceration of almost 200,000 um, Japanese Americans into concentration camps up and down the Pacific coast. And then you have this woman and her and, and the media effort to support McCarthyism and to support shutting down anyone who disagrees with them. So what I find really fascinating about those, and we're going we're gonna to jump over to this other concept that we're planning to talk about today, which is the role of a propagandist. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing that Danny Glover may or may not have gotten into, which is that Hollywood still runs on money. Mm-hmm. No, so, very good point. Very good point. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's all sorts of things that simply do not, films that do not get made that could be made, but the, the money is not there. And, right. you know, so you have to, you have these independent productions that may or may not uh, get circulated. Right. There are people, the great filmmakers like Peter Canoy in New York, who's done marvelous work, uh, particularly about Latin America, and, you know, needs much greater exposure. And, I'm sure it's really hard yeah. as an independent left-wing filmmaker. Meanwhile, we've got the Transformers mm, right. movies. I just That's right. Wow. Yeah, um it it is it is really interesting what goes on there. And then of course there's product placement which used to be, you know, the concept of, you know, oh, someone's drinking a Coca-Cola or the character is opening up their MacBook Pro or, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? That was obvious product placement. But now what we have is we have idea placement. And you can have great idea placement that, you know, like makes a good message and moves the world forward. But you can also have idea placement that definitely benefits corporate interests that are not necessarily the best interest of, of the common people. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. It's an interesting world. So, Bill, yeah, I'm having fun. Let's see here. Um, I do want to mention to people, I'm assuming that your radio show, which is called Arise, and plays at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Friday mornings um, on WPFW, which is the Pacifica station, right? That's correct. Okay. 89.3 for any of your listeners who are over there in your area. And um, the thing is, though, you have um, either, what, a podcast option or do you have a website where people can go hear your show? Yeah, there's a, there's two ways. One is that PFW shows are archived. Uh, and people can go to WPFWSM.org and then look for my show, which is, as you said, called Arise. Mm-hmm. It is also podcast through WPFW. So you go to wpfwfm.org. Okay. And folks, if you if you are driving, please don't, you know, grab a pen and paper and get in a wreck trying to write that down. You can always go to my website, marchwizdell.com, and you can catch Bill's show, and there will be a bio. And in the bio, we'll make sure that we have that information. Okie doke. All right. So when did you create Arise, the concept for it? It's interesting. It was in 2014, I believe, or 2013, that WPFW um, actually contacted me. They were reorganizing mm-hmm. the station, and they wanted to have a program 
that was particularly focused on labor and workers. Right. And they knew me. And, and so they asked me if I would do it. And it was one day a week. I was um, both excited but also reluctant. So does that mean it's a live show? Oh, it's a live show. Got it. Absolutely. We've pre-recorded segments, but it's basically a live show. Yeah. So I was reluctant in part because I travel a lot. Mm -hmm. And this was one day a week. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out how to do it, but I basically, we put it together. It quickly evolved. So it's not a show that is about unions. It's a show that is about the struggles of working people. And mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. includes unions, but it's not restricted to unions. And it can be quite broad. We have done shows covering international issues, uh, the Vietnamese labor movement, for example. We have done shows on the crisis in Puerto Rico. Yo, oh, I know, right? Uh, yeah. No, and you so, never hear about that. Exactly. Oh my gosh! And then during the primary, when they went ahead and uh, the Obama administration pushed through their solution to the supposed problems down there, and I just remember thinking, Terrible. no, 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 yeah. and no one, no one knew about it. Even right. people who were paying attention to the primary, you know, Bernie Kratz galore, I would be like, da -da -da, and people would be like, huh? And I'm like. Don't you know about this? You're like, no. And I'm like, ah, yeah. Very poor um, uh, publicity, let's say, of yeah. the situation going on in Puerto Rico. Intentionally, um, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, we started doing it. And initially, it was, uh, we had a call-in component. Mm -hmm. And then we were briefly on uh, KPFA, which is the Pacific Affiliate in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, nice. And what, yeah, and when we did that, we stopped doing the call-ins. But that, um, that only lasted uh, for a few months, unfortunately. And uh, I've been hoping to expand the scope of the show sure. uh, to make it more national. We're in a, an incredible struggle right now around information, accurate information. And, and it relates to discussion we started, you and I started having earlier about this notion of propaganda. Propaganda as a term has a bad name, but basically mm -hmm. propaganda is articulating a point of view aimed at convincing people to that and to some form of action. And so you'll have good propaganda, bad propaganda, um, there's other terms. I mean, one of the terms that was once used was publicist. Mm -hmm. Someone who's a publicist and uh, not in the sense of a PR person, but as a, uh, a person who is articulating very strong points of view. That's essentially what I am. And I, and it's, it's a, a role that I think is credible. I'm, mm -hmm. I, I have no apologies for it. And it's in a world where, the media is squeezing us and yeah. points of view are being narrowed, even right. in the so-called liberal media. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's interesting. Like I looked up, you know, I always I love it because I've got my little laptop here. So when I'm mm. doing interviews, I can look things up. So I looked up propaganda and unfortunately it is in the 
original definition that pops up, you know, first. Um, you know, it says information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political point or cause. Now, that's what they call the derogatory definition. Yeah. It, um, it's sort of like that book, 1984. Right. You know, words are ours so long as we retain our ownership and control of them. And if we lose that, then they can be used against us. So thank you for reminding us that propaganda has a history to it conceptually and can be viewed in a different way. But right now, it may be that propaganda is so deep in that hole, it may not be recoverable as a yeah. positive term. I think, you know, it's a very interesting point of view, because um, let me take one of my favorite right-wing columnists, uh, George mm -hmm. Will. Mm -hmm. George Will is a propagandist. I mean, that's what he does. There's nothing intrinsically negative. I don't agree with his point of view, except when he's talking about baseball, um, <laughs> but uh, where he and I are all frequently on the same page. But um, he's a propagandist. You're right that the term has been so uh, derided that it's very difficult to rehabilitate it, although I try. Mm -hmm. so I, I think that we who are publicists, whatever you want to call us, mm -hmm. are people that are attempting to convince a wider public to a point of view and to an action. Mm -hmm. I think that that is, that is a neutral understanding. Uh, there are people on the right wing that do that, and there are people on the left wing that do that. You and know, there should you, be nothing wrong about nothing, that. We know what. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, okay. What's so, wrong is when people misstate facts, mm -hmm. and that's why the whole notion, for example, of what the right wing started to call alternative facts, is yeah. erroneous. Yeah. There are no there are no alternative facts. There's just facts. There are, that's right. There are either there are facts, and there are lies, and there mm -hmm. are opinions. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you know, I remember as a kid when the Gemini flights were going around the Earth, the, Earth, the United States was sending these two-man capsules, um, and after, in one of the flights, there was a group in Britain called the Flat Earth Society, and it's no joke, and they sent a greetings to the Gemini pilots, astronauts, and they said, Congratulations. We know that you're looking at the Earth and it appears to be round, but that is an optical illusion. Now, um, the Flat Earth Society has as much right as anyone else to offer their point of view. Yeah. But the fact that they have a point of view does not make that point of view factual. Mm -hmm. You know, pure and simple. Well, it's like Galileo. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. you know, that's the perfect example. You know, he had a point of view based upon certain things he had observed. And he said, I think it's possible based upon these observations, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is the fundamental concept of science is that's that right. the science is never settled because it's always based upon what we know up to this point, And right. there's always more to know. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can challenge me and come up with your own hypothesis and your own study. So it's an invitation to endless debate for the sake of increasing knowledge over time. I think that that's exactly right. And 
What I uh, frequently say to people is that, by way of example, in 1815, Napoleon was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. Mm. That is a fact. That is an indisputable fact. Now, why he was defeated Mm -hmm. is a matter of analysis. And so, you know, you look at the analyses that have been written about what happened in the Battle of Waterloo, and then you come to your own conclusions based on the available evidence. Right. And that's all that you can do. But that's, that ends up being, as you described, a hypothesis or a thesis that, in, that individuals have. But it's, that's different than saying, for a fact, the world is flat or that the world has only been uh, in existence for 5,000 years. Right. I mean, that, that may be your theological point of view, and I respect that as a theological point of view, mm-hmm. but it's factually wrong. Or you haven't, or no one has yet provided um, the evidence that you um, agree with. So for you, it's it's factually wrong. I mean, you know, it, it's like that's one of those problems. You know, I've got a I've got an uncle who um, I'm pretty sure thinks the world is only about five or six thousand years old. Mm-hmm. And I actually really enjoy having conversations with him because he'll bring up from his perspective is that there's, you know, certain flaws in carbon dating or that there's, you know, ways in which you can't quite tell this or that. And and I I love a person who will offer me a challenging and different perspective because I just find it fascinating the diverse ways in which humans can look at the world. And my dog is snorting a bunch. Dobby, what are you doing? I'm going to be editing this out. <laughs> Dobby, what are you doing? He decided to stretch, roll, and snort all at once. Hi. You know what? On that point, I'm going to go ahead and go to a quick station identification, and then we're going to come back and explore a little bit about how fiction, which is sort of the opposite of facts, can actually play a really powerful role in inspiring positive social change in the world. So let's see, folks. I would like to remind you, if you have just joined us in the past few minutes, that my name is March Twisdale. I'm the producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And today I'm having a great time talking with Bill Fletcher, Jr. Before we return to the interview, I'd like to give a shout-out to some of the folks that keep Voice of Ashon on the air. Support for this program comes from Northwest School of Animal Massage. NWSAM has something for every animal lover. Workshops, professional courses, and blended learning options that allow flexibility as students learn large and small animal massage for professional certification or to take special care of beloved pets. More information can be found at nwsam.com. Voice of Ashon also thanks Windermere Real Estate for its support in making our emergency alert service possible. Thank you, Windermere. Given that we're probably not in the next few minutes going to absolutely resolve and solve the issues around propaganda, let's go ahead and actually spin sideways to an area where, for me personally, I look at fiction as a huge, partly untapped opportunity to inspire people. You look at a nonfiction book and it's going to say, hey, let me talk to your brain. Let me talk to the cognitive part of your brain. I'm going to give you information and suggestions for how you can live different because gosh golly, we're going to run out of oil or world's going to heat up and blah, blah, blah. So you close the book at the end and now in your head, 
you have reasons to change how you live, but I don't find that that is often sufficient to actually create concrete lifestyle changes in many human beings. And then you switch over to a novel. People become entranced with, they fall in love with the characters. They're crying. They're sobbing in chapter five. They're anxious and freaked out in chapter 11. And their brain is being engaged, but their heart is being just wrung out and twisted and squeezed. And they're hoping for this character to have, you know, a positive outcome or whatever it is. At the end of reading that story, you have concretely changed that human being internally, and that is a lasting change in who they are because you've affected them on an emotional level in addition to their brain. So tell me a little bit about what you're hoping to do as an activist with fiction. Well, I've always loved reading fiction, and I've tended to be drawn into science fiction and detectives. And what has increasingly affected me with science fiction was recognizing how ideological science fiction is, mm. that it's a battleground for competing ideas about reality, about everything, class, race, sex, um, everything. But I have mainly written nonfiction. A few years back, uh, I had a story in mind that I put together in my head over years and finally made an attempt at writing a novel. It was a detective, sort of a, uh, a murder mystery. It didn't come out great, but I enjoyed it. And I basically felt two things. One is that it was legitimate to write it. But the other thing was I was trying to use it to raise a series of issues about history and about the history, particularly of the Black Freedom Movement. Mm -hmm. um, I got a very bad response when I went to an agent and, uh, uh, with, that, with that manuscript. And I tell you this because it's really important for aspiring writers mm -hmm. to understand that you can be treated like a dog by people that you otherwise respect uh, when you create something. This is not just true with writers. I went to this agent who I'd been introduced to by a, a colleague. She read the manuscript and did not have one piece of constructive feedback. Now, wait real quick. So this was an agent or an yeah. editor? No it, was an no, it was an agent. And she... Uh, she actually read the manuscript. This is not her responding to your query letter, but she actually no. read the whole manuscript. That's right. She read the whole manuscript. Got it. Or at least said that she did. But um, <laughs> So she, she read it and then got back to me and had nothing positive to say. And in fact, I concluded that the way she read it, by based on the comment that she made, was that she at least misunderstood something. But in either case, her final comment to me was, get back to me when you write some more nonfiction. And I said, wow. It's like, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, so I know what you're years, supposed to do with that. You've read what? the book, The Four Agreements, right? No, no, I haven't. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So get 
this is a book that everyone should get around the age of 17 or, or up to 22 or something. A young part, it informs your life. It's called The Four Agreements. The takeaway from The Four Agreements is what another person says or does says a lot about them and their viewpoint and not hardly anything about you. So when I, I mean, I have engaged with agents who have read my manuscripts and they have come back to me and been very clear on all of the flaws, but they have done it in a way that also makes me feel like, yes, keep working, that's develop right. your skills. So my thinking is that's not the type of agent I'd want to work with because there's a difference between being really clear and honest and supportive and being clear and honest and non-supportive. Oh, so, absolutely. I would never go back to her. Actually, yeah. that was my second experience with her. Oh, boy. And the first experience was with a nonfiction book that I was trying to put together. Uh-huh. And her feedback was just simply not helpful. So I became very discouraged. But I had an idea for another book. I put it off, put it off, until finally my daughter said to me, Dad, you need to write this. You've got an idea that really needs to be explored. Mm-hmm. And it was another. It was a political murder mystery. Mm-hmm. And and so last summer, I wrote it after having thought about it and, and developed the entire idea in my head over five, six, seven years. And I now have a contract with a small publisher in New York to do it. And it's interesting because this publisher, and I was looking for an agent and I could not get an agent. And then this publisher looked at it and he liked it, and but he had exactly the kinds of comments that I found useful, along the lines of what you described. Right. Very constructive and really have pushed me Mm -hmm. to And so I'm now in uh, the second draft of writing this novel. Yeah, you're not looking to have someone stroke you and say you're wonderful and great, and oh gosh, golly, you know, you wrote the perfect novel first time out. Lucky you. I mean, that's not what we're looking for, but we want someone who's going to say, like, this is what really isn't working, and here's why, and here's three ideas I have on what you might want to do or something else, but this ain't working, so you got to fix it. Like, that's a very empowering comment from someone, actually. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that it's just, you know, and, and it helps me learn. Yeah. I, I just, I feel like this is exactly what I need because what many people don't believe, but really is true. After I've completed writing something, it's not, it's not connected to my ego anymore. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's very easy for editors to work with me because mm-hmm. I write something and then they'll, rewrite it or offer comments and unless it's fundamentally in a political difference or something. right right i'm very when i i wrote a 18 month long column on a basically the human rights of informed consent and mm-hmm. um, i co-wrote with a good friend of mine and that that's always a really good exercise um she and i are both uh how would i explain it we are extremely careful to make sure that our words match with our thoughts Mm-hmm. And so it was It was like the first six to eight of the articles, which were a thousand words each, probably took us, I would say, like 30 hours or more of Skyping over the phone and talking to each other before we would get to something that both of us could could sign on to, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was such a great learning experience, and we loved it. We're like, wow, we're still friends. We haven't killed each other, and we did this. Yay, right? Mm-hmm. But it was the same thing is we never really had a sticking point on anything unless it was a shift in the message. That's right. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What's the name of the publisher? Hardball Press. Oh, I like that name. Yeah. I'm getting to know more and more publishers over the years yeah. and stuff. Okay, Hardball Press. You actually have a release date coming up? No, no. We okay. have a contract, and I'm working on a second draft. Got it. It's a political murder mystery that takes place in 1970. Most of it is in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and it revolves around race, revenge, and I particularly try to highlight the experiences of Cape Verdeans, of which what? were Cape Verdeans. Oh. Cape Verdeans were the first African population to come to the United States as a free people. Oh. Um, and this was in the 1800s when Cape, the Cape Verde Islands, which are 500 miles off the coast of Senegal, right. were controlled by the Portuguese. But the Cape Verdeans came to the United States as whalers and fishermen, and they settled in southeastern Massachusetts. There are Cape Verdean communities now in Los Angeles and uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, but right. the largest area is in southeastern Massachusetts. And I first went to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where there's a large Cape Verdean population, in the early 60s. And so I encountered these black people who just seemed to have strange names. Well, and I didn't think much about it at the time. But also, they're basically African Americans that do not have a personal um, history with the slave trade. That's right. And that is so important right. in terms of their identity over yeah. the years and the political consciousness. And that's part of what my, my book is looking at through the vantage point of, of a mystery. But the Cape Verdean consciousness really begins to change in the 1960s when an independent struggle emerges in Guinea-Bissau and the Cape Verde Islands against the Portuguese. And when in the United States you have the rise of the civil rights movement and the black power movement. So this population that in some cases, adamantly refused to identify as Negro, Afro-American, African-American, or Black, mm -hmm. all of a sudden starts to change. And it starts to change the way that they look at themselves. And so there were Black people that I met when I first went to Cape Cod, and they would, their identity was Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was even stranger where there would be large numbers of Cape Verdeans that would classify themselves as white, mm -hmm. even though they were quite brown or dark. Mm -hmm. So my novel is sort of situated to a great extent within that community. It's not about Cape Verdeans, but it's about Cape Verdeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm working on, let's see, I'm on revision number four this year. I'm going to do revision number four and number five. Mm -hmm. um, four is during the summer. Five is going to be specifically during NaNoWriMo. I've got a major whole month retreat set aside. And um, I'm hoping to start actually querying people in um, January, like mid to late January, where I think a lot of people are like, they're done with the holidays. It's cold. It's dark. They want to sit inside by the fire and read query letters. And hopefully they're excited about, you know, their economic goals for the year or their business goals for the year. And so I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, well, maybe they're going to be really high energy and interested in finding that, that needle in a haystack. So 
anyways, but um, but this is the first of a four novel series I have planned out, and each one is going to be highlighting, not in an obvious way, but each one is designed to highlight a specific minority demographic that is terribly underserved or lied about in mainstream media. The first novel called The Ghost Lords supports a more authentic viewpoint on um, illegal immigrants from south of the border. In this case, it's a girl from Juarez, Mexico. Because, you know, there's these ridiculous ideas that people are here to just sponge off of good working Americans and all this ridiculousness out there. And my mm -hmm. husband is from Mexico. My my married family is, you know, they all immigrated here and stuff like that. So the reality is the reason you go through the extreme challenges of migrating into the United States illegally, really the number one reason is because you love your kids. It's not about Mexican immigrants, but it's about Mexican immigrants is going to be this really, it's, a, it's how you can do that layer. You know, you can just sort of bring it up without being so obvious. I call it like the backdoor message that the readers will take away from the novel. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So how many words is your book right now? It's about 300 pages, double space. Are you aiming and, for like 80,000? Well, let me put it like this. Mm -hmm. The publisher said he wants to shorten it yeah. from what it is now. But the irony is that he also has added several things mm. that he wants me to to do. And, and most of his suggestions have been really very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, one particular one that I have been grappling with, I'm not sure what I'm quite going to do with, but I'm, I'm still playing around with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the imagination play around with the stage for sure. I, I find my first um, version was 200,000 words, mm -hmm. and my first edit was to um, my, actually my friend who's um, an editor and his wife's an agent. He actually read that. What a sweetheart. And he's the one who sat down for three hours and gave me like the honest feedback in a very encouraging way. And mm -hmm. he said, edit number two, you have to cut this book in half, make it 100,000 words. I said, okay. So I sat down, and in one month, NaNoWriMo of four years ago, I think, three years ago, um, I cut it down to 100,000 words. And mm -hmm. it was totally brilliantly doable because I tend to, like, throw it all out there on the page. And then you're just basically, you're remembering that you can trust your reader to make the leaps and to not need to have everything written out for them so much and so you as you start to trust your reader more and more you just start to tighten it and it's so much better when it's tight i love it mm -hmm. so yeah 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 it's possible to add and reduce length at the same time you just got to get tight well that's what i'm going to try to do that's, yeah. that's my task do you have a deadline he hasn't given me one but i have one in mind good i, I want to have this completed by the end of August. Oh, nice. Um, and the reason is that I'm hoping to work on one or maybe two other books. And so if I can clear this out by the end of summer, mm -hmm. this draft at least, then uh, I'll be able to start work on the other. Yeah. But, but right now what, what we're doing is my wife is reading rereading the, uh, the, the the piece because see the way I did it this time in part because of what happened the first time with that agent yeah is that I gave the manuscript to my wife my daughter and a cousin of mine 
And I gave it to them because these are three people that I know will not BS me. Right, right. Right. And I said to them, what I want to, I want you to read this, not with the eyes of an editor. I want you to read this. And at the end, I want you to tell me thumbs up or thumbs down. And if you say thumbs up, then I'm going to look and try to get an agent and try to get it published. Mm -hmm. If you say thumbs down, then I will not do anything more with it, but I will have enjoyed writing it. Mm. And uh, and so the three of them read it, and they all gave me thumbs up. Mm-hmm. So after getting the feedback from the publisher, I reread it and started making notes about changes that I'm planning on introducing. Mm-hmm. And then I gave it to my wife, and she's almost finished reading it again. Right. And so this time she's reading it with the eyes of an editor, and she actually has edited many of the things that I've written. She's fabulous. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to her feedback. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like if you have a, a trusted person who won't BS you and they've got good editing skills, they can actually do multiple reads. Otherwise, sometimes you know, you're out there scrambling trying to find a first reader because you know if they've read it twice, it really impacts their ability to give um, that type of feedback. So... Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, right there with you, man. I totally yeah. get what you're going through. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really been, it was interesting because in writing this most recent piece, one of the things that happened to me is something that I've heard other writers describe, but I'd never experienced, mm. which was at a certain juncture, my fingers started typing a story. And it was not necessarily the story that I had been thinking about. For example, an action sequence in it that wasn't in my original, I wasn't opposed to the idea for sure, but it wasn't in my original thinking. And and I'm writing it and all of a sudden, boom, I'm doing this action sequence. It was not something I had been planning on. It was like all of a sudden, wow, these two characters are involved in a a love scene. Well, you know, if the characters are real in the mind of the writer, then two great things happen. One is that they will tend to be real for the reader. And two, they will tend to start informing the writer of what it is that they want to see happen. Right. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. That really is. That's that, that really sums it up. Pretty much. Yeah. When this novel is coming out, like a year and a half or so from now, because it typically mm-hmm. takes a while, um, feel free to give me a call. Let me know. We can have you come back on the show. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. The challenge of being a writer activist mm-hmm. versus being a writer who writes about activism but hasn't necessarily had a lot of firsthand experience. Um, what is it that you want to say specifically about that? I want to say a few things. One is that for those of us who are nonfiction writers, who are activists, who have a demonstrable activist experience, it is frequently the case that we, our writings are not credited as being anything more than the writings of an observer, perhaps. Maybe we're encouraged to write memoirs or things along those lines. 
whereas the critical thinking is reserved for academics. Oh. And, and this becomes a problem, even in progressive circles, where the, the person that has a PhD at the end of their name is given a level of credibility that I don't think they necessarily deserve. Mm -hmm. But at a minimum, they, they need to earn. You see, you can have people who, and I'm not, I'm not putting down the role of, of academic scholars at all. Right. I think that people that go into academia, that go into, into depth in analyzing something, studying something, there's an immense value to that. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that those of us who have experienced struggles, who have been in, engaged in campaigns, in, in activism, that what we have to say is any less important. And it's, it's also critical that those that have not been engaged in struggle, whether they're academics or other forms of public intellectuals, mm -hmm. who are sitting back commenting, need to have some level of humility. Right. You know, and they, they need to recognize that, that they may know a great deal, but that there's much that they're missing from well, having not been involved in the heart of battles. Okay, so this ties in actually really perfectly. So we'll jump over real quick to that other point, and then we're going to come right back sort of the heart sure. of this point, which is that you were talking about the role of Ivy League colleges yes. and the way in which a young person who goes into an Ivy League, League college is going to come out with rather than deep humility, oftentimes a completely different attitude. Why don't you just sort of explain that real quick and then we're going to take that yeah. with us back to the, the um, activism versus academic writing thing. No, well, you, you summed it up. I mean, I, I went to Harvard. Um, I did well. And while I was there, I didn't realize it at the time fully, but that the purpose of these Ivy League colleges is to train people to rule the world. And so there's a level of arrogance that emerges even among the best of people because you, at a certain point, when you get past freshman year, you pretty much are told you're brilliant and that the world is your oyster. And so you, you leave school thinking about how much you know as opposed to thinking about how much you need to learn. Well, and you also, if you go to an Ivy League school in particular, I mean, everyone's pretty upfront about it, that you don't send your kids there necessarily because the teachers are going to give them better education or the content of the class is going to be better. It's not actually really for that. It's oftentimes mostly to congeal the social relationships. I know a lot of good radicals that have come through Ivy League schools mm -hmm. and have stayed radicals. I don't mean people that were radical while they were there, and then they went off to make their first million. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who have dedicated their entire lives to social and economic justice. So your concern is that we have people who come out of their Ivy League schools with degrees, and they feel like, because I have a bunch of book learning, and because I've you know studied under these great 
you know, teachers or whatever, wow, look at how much I know. And I've got these letters after my name. So I'm going to go out and write about what I've learned and expect to be respected for what I'm saying. What I'm wondering is, is the concern so much that these people are overestimated as being um, really accurate in what they're saying? Or is it that there's a concern that when on the ground activists write, there is some societal impulse to question or doubt or not trust? Both. Got it. Both. And, and see, the thing I would say also is that you have you so you have people that come to these elite institutions when they start writing that's one issue and i'll come back to that the other thing that happens is the expectation that having gone through these schools should position them to lead organizations agencies etc etc so Mm -hmm. people instead of recognizing that there's street learning that should uh, should emerge. There's the assumption that, okay, I went to Harvard, I went to Yale, I went to Princeton, I went to Stanford, whatever, and therefore I should be able to run an organization just because of that, right? This could so bring us back to the, the idea of unions because the, it's pretty annoying when the 27-year-old kid who just came out of college with a degree gets hired into a managerial position at, say, you know, and the people who have been there for 30 years who know how it all works, they're like, I can run this place way better than you can. You know, can you listen to me? I'm going to tell you what you need to be doing. No, exactly. Exactly. But to Mm -hmm. go back to the writing issue, so what you have is one of the most frustrating things for me is Mm -hmm. people who, because they have that PhD, Mm -hmm or JD, or some other uh, credential. So you, you have a situation where people will go to college, maybe come out with a graduate degree, and those credentials end up becoming the pass, the, the ticket of admission right. for getting things published, or getting on TV, mm. or getting on the radio. So you can have an immense amount of experience in social justice activism, but that is not necessarily treated as justifying your being an analyst. Which is so ironic because all those books that people learned from when they were in college were usually based upon or written by the activists of 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And it's like, now that it's in a book, you know, okay, I go learn it. It has value. But if it's the person who's actually out there right now engaged, well, I don't know. know? Oh, that's right. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, it's simply amazing. And it's, and speaking very personally, I mean, this has been a source of frustration for me over the years where I know that were I to have a doctorate, um, I'm sure that there's any number of doors that would have opened, but I made a different decision and a decision that I don't regret, mm-hmm. uh, by the way. But I made a different decision about what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't think about it in terms of the the term, but I basically wanted to become a public intellectual who was grounded in social struggles. So I have been writing continuously since I got out of college. And, uh, you know, it started as letters to the editor. 
to different papers, and then it started, moved to op-eds, and, and I've struggled to become a better writer. I've been helped immensely in that by my wife um, in terms of her feedback on my writing. And if I'm not writing, I'm not breathing. I mean, it's so central to who I am. Well, and I'd say, I would say after having witnessed you this weekend presenting at an event that people who write have to think first. You think and then you put it on paper. And the way in which you concisely and elegantly and clearly presented your points, everything about your presentation was really, really exceptional and not because I agree. I'm looking at this as an editing, analyzing type of viewpoint. You know, you did not go on too long about anything. You know, you didn't make any of the faux pas or mistakes. You were, it, it made a lot of sense. And so I, having not, yes, having not read a ton of your writing yet, because I only met you a few days ago, I'm sure if you can speak that well, I'm sure your writing's great too. So the, the, this question is percolating around the world right now in so many ways, and this comes up in the, quote, realm of, of science as well, is that you can have a person who spends 20 years of their life researching, investigating, and learning about a topic, but if they didn't do it in the halls of a accredited school, which oftentimes is controlled and managed by the industries that donate money to the school, you know, okay, whether it's Monsanto or Big Pharma or, you know, oil and industry, whoever it is, these schools get shaped in what they teach based upon, you know, who's giving the money. So if you're out there independently engaged and educating yourself, how do you get the average American to give you the time of day because you lack those three letters after your name? That is actually the $64,000 question. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it goes to why programs like yours are important. I think it goes to why uh, independent media becomes very important. It goes to the, the way that progressive public intellectuals need to think about, this, uh, about social media. But it also, it's really important that progressive writers understand who it is that they're trying to reach. And that is absolutely crucial to a writer because all writers, job number one is not writing the book anymore. Job number one is finding your readers. And job number two is writing the book. Precisely. See, you're lucky because you're actually doing both of those things and therefore they both support each other. They line up perfectly. Indeed. I feel quite fortunate Yeah. in many, many ways. Yeah. All right, so, Bill, we are officially out of time. Okay. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks I know. so much. Yeah, right. Hasn't it been? It really has. Yeah. All right. So that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Bill Fletcher, Jr. Hey, Bill, do you have a personal website? I do. It's BillFletcherJr.com. It's that easy. And uh, is Junior I'm also spelled... on Twitter. And, well, it's just Junior is J-R. Got it. So it's all one word. And uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Yes. As well. Absolutely. All right. And um, so thank you again 
folks for joining me on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.